pray as we begin this morning. Our gracious God, we approach you with reverence. We want to engage with you in spirit and in truth. We declare that you alone are worthy, and so would you feed our minds with your word? Would you fill our hearts with your grace? Would you empower our worshipful response by your spirit? I pray that we would approach your word this morning not merely as consumers looking to be pleased, but worshipers longing to be consumed with your glory and grace. And so as we seek to lift you up, even now through this sermon, we trust that you will bring us low. And in bringing us low, you will then mend all that needs to be mended. And you do it for our good. And you do it for your glory. And so allow this sermon to be effective in the lives of others because it's an instrument in your hands, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. In his book, A Community of Character, Stanley Hauerwas contends that Christianity was the very first religion that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. This is what he writes, one clear difference between Christianity and Judaism and all other traditional religions is that the former, Christianity's, entertainment of the idea of singleness as a paradigm for a way of life. Nearly all ancient religions and cultures have made absolute value of the family and of having children. And then Jesus Christ stepped into the world in which he created and he led a single life. Additionally, the the prominent human author of the New Testament, the choice instrument used by the Holy Spirit to see the gospel spread vastly in the days following Jesus' death was a single man named Paul. And in his writings, inspired by the Spirit, Paul would even say that singleness is a calling that is blessed by God. And in some instances in some circumstances, is even preferable to marriage. And so this morning, I wonder, as we approach the Word of God, what is your attitude towards singleness? Do you find the same sentiment to be true in regards to how you view singleness? In her article, Plan B for the Christian Life, Paige Benton Brown lists several ways that Christians try to explain singleness. And she gives a few examples. And she says, she's heard this, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, then he'll bring someone special into your life. As though God's blessings are somehow earned by our contentment. Or this, Maybe you're just too picky. As though God is frustrated by our whims and our needs 
And that then forms the parameters by which God chooses to work. Or she said, I hear that as a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. As though God requires people to be unhitched from marriage in order to be wholehearted in their service to him. Or she said, before you can marry someone wonderful, then the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As though God grants marriage as a sort of second blessing to those who are really sanctified. Commenting on this article, Tim Keller said, beneath these statements is the premise that the single life is a state of deprivation for people who are not yet fully formed for marriage. I wonder if that attitude finds its way into your thinking about singleness. Do you think that singleness is second best? I would just plead with you this morning at the outset of the sermon, allow the Spirit to search your heart. No matter what season of life you find yourself in, perhaps you think it's second best because you are single. Or perhaps you think it's second best because you've been spared of that. The aim of the sermon this morning, uh, this morning is not merely knowledge acquisition, but knowledge acquisition that would lead to heart and life change. That's the aim, is that the Word of God would really shape us this morning. And it would be an encouragement to all of us, regardless of our station in life. And that we would understand the good gifts that God has given to both marrieds and singles. Well, welcome to the final week of our three-week series on marriage. Our hope is that God would allow each of us to uphold God's good design and purpose for marriage. And that all of us, both marrieds and singles, would cherish marriage by living obediently to his word and walking with others to ensure that they're doing the same. On the first week of this series, I went home and had lunch with my family and over lunch, going through, how was the sermon? And one of my family members said, well... Sermon was good, but I really didn't listen. That's encouraging. Why did you not listen? Well, because I'm not married. Hmm. How might marriage be good for you, knowing God's design for marriage? How might that be good for you if you're not yet married? We think the Bible overflows with. The goodness of his design is not merely intended to be good news for those who find themselves in the design. It's good for all of us to know his design. Because no matter what season we find ourselves in, we want to be faithful to that. But we also want to look at those who are ahead of us, those who are our peers, those who are younger than us. And we want to uphold God's good design in both marriage and in singleness. And so if you are prone to be like one unnamed family member in my household to think, ah, I don't need to listen. 
to this sermon because I'm married. I would just remind you, especially if you're a member of this local church, you have a God-given commitment and responsibility to know what his word says so that you can encourage other brothers and sisters who are in a season that is different than yours. And so we began, our, we began our series week one with this stunningly glorious foundation going back all the way to Genesis chapter one and two. And then we held up God's primary purpose for marriage. This marriage is not man's idea, it's God's design. And it's intended to showcase one thing really, really clear. Ephesians chapter five, verse 32 tells us. It's to be this picture of the relationship that Christ has with his church. Well, then week two, we considered if that, if that picture is so glorious, if this relationship really has that much at stake, that it's showcasing the glory and the worth of Christ in this relationship, the reality is that our marriages are often difficult. It requires work. And so what is God's provision for those moments of conflict? And we saw through Ephesians chapter 4, namely, God has provided for conflict in your marriage in the same way he's provided for conflict in all relationships. To, to act as becoming as a Christian. That you would live Christianly in your marriage. And so this morning, then we find ourselves thinking about the topic of singleness. And you say, wait a minute, I thought this was a series on marriage. Why are we then talking about singleness? Well, because the interconnectedness of these two callings is hard to separate. Because every one of us who finds ourselves married, we have once been single. And for all of us who find ourselves married, Statistically speaking, most couples don't die at the same time. We will find ourselves single again. And all of us know those who are single. But the reason that we're talking about this this morning isn't merely because there's a shared common experience around the topic of singleness. The connection between marriage and singleness is deeply theological. And so if marriage was designed to show off the relationship between Christ and his church, Christ's love, his devotion to the church, and we're to, we see that in a husband and wife's love and devotion to one another, then singleness shows off the church's love and devotion to Christ. And that's seen in the single person's exclusive devotion to Christ. I could say it another way. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. And let's be clear this morning. God's word is very clear on something that I think many of us, even within the church, misunderstand or just completely don't uh, we, we miss it all together. God's word makes clear that Christians are defined by their identity in Christ, not by their calling or their station of life. And God's word also makes abundantly clear that singleness and marriage are not identities. 
their callings, their gifts. And so a gift given to you, a gift placed upon you, is not meant to be your identity. Our identities are rooted in one thing, and that is our union with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so singleness, just like marriage, doesn't stamp an identity on you. It stamps a calling upon you. And that calling then informs much about how you live. And so just at the very outset, it would be helpful then maybe to get underneath the hood and begin to rewire some things if you think you primarily are a married individual or a single individual, that is not the basis of your identity if you are in Christ. You are first and foremost a part of His family. And that identity trumps earthly callings. I hope, I hope, and I pray that you believe that, that you're convinced of that in and through the scriptures. And so this morning, we want to consider God's calling of singleness. And we'll do so by considering God's purposeful limitations for marriage. God's purposeful limitations for marriage. And so I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Maybe helpful just to give you a little bit of context to understand as we're parachuting into this passage. Paul's been writing to this church And it's helpful for us to know, what is it that Paul means? We want to know what the original audience would have understood Paul to mean, and that will help us understand rightly what this text means, and then we can begin to think about how we apply it. And so Paul's been writing to the church at Corinth, and he's wanting them to make sure that they walk in step with what they believe. And Paul's showing them that it's not okay to merely adhere in belief only and to not have your life completely transformed by your belief. And so the church at Corinth has seemingly sound doctrine and yet unsound living. And Paul says, no, 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 those things come together because if you believe this, it will inform then how you live. Chapter 6 ends with this reminder, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And with that reminder then, Paul transitions. He transitions from beginning to sort of work through issues that he has heard about, received reports about in their church to say, no, no, you don't belong to yourself. With every bit of life that you have, you honor your Savior. And then he gets to chapter 7, And we read in verse 1 that now he begins to take up matters that they have written to him about. Most notably, issues of sexuality. How how is it then? If, If 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, if we've been bought with a price, how then do we honor God in our bodies? And as Paul's teaching, at the end of chapter 6, he remembers this is a great point then. This is a great opportunity then for me to transition into the questions that they've asked about sexuality. How we honor God with our body and our sexuality go together. 
And Paul uses this chapter to make clear that God calls all Christians to sexual purity. And he does it in one of two ways, either through the gift of marriage or celibacy in the gift of singleness. The gift of marriage or celibacy in the gift of singleness. And I love embedded in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's so much good there. But if you jump down to verse 29, listen to what Paul says. But I say this, brethren, the time has been shortened so that those now, uh, that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And that those who use the world and those who did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. And so there's a teaching that the Corinthians were to experience as they hear this. As Paul is talking about how you honor the Lord in regards to sexual purity, either through celibacy and in the gift of singleness or through the gift of marriage, Paul puts in verses 29 and 31, there's an urgency that weighs on this topic. And the urgency is that the, is there is a reality of the brevity of life and the passing of this world. And so we shouldn't cool, nonchalantly hear this sermon this morning. Now we should feel the weight of the brevity of this life and the quickly passing nature of this world. And so this morning we'll trace three points that Paul makes for a case of the gift of singleness. And so what we want to say in all three points is that singleness is commended. Paul commends the gift of singleness. And we'll have three reasons why he does it. So the first one, singleness is commended because marriage isn't ultimate. Singleness is commended because marriage isn't ultimate. And we see this literally in the first section, little phrase there in verse 7. Paul writes and says, Yet I wish that all men, the Greek there in uh, for all means all. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. And so Paul has just said, he has just made an astonishing claim. This is the guy who wrote Ephesians chapter 5. This is the guy who understands the otherworldly, glorious nature of this relationship between husband and wife because of the primary purpose of what that relationship points to. And that same guy, inspired by the same Holy Spirit, said, I wish all men were like me, particularly single. In the first seven verses, Paul's responding to the cultural climate in Corinth. And really, it was this anything goes type of sexual expression and preference. And there were some in the church who had this mistaken belief and in, in, uh, kind of opposed to this cultural anything goes with our sexuality. There were some in the church who were saying no, s sexuality and sexual expression of any kind is bad. Even sex inside of marriage is bad. And so Paul's able to condemn sexual immorality among those that aren't married, verse 1, while upholding its good design in verses 2 through 6. 
And then we arrive at verse 7. And really, in light of everything else he's written, it's kind of shocking how he begins. He, he gives us this declaration that he wishes that all were single as he was single. And so how in the world can he say this? Well, because Paul knew something about marriage that apart from the scriptures, I'm not sure we would know. Paul rested all of his belief on the teachings of his Savior. And Jesus addressed this very thing. In Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, perhaps you'll remember the scene. The Sadducees come trying to catch Jesus in a trap. And the Sadducees, they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to catch Jesus in, the, in, the, in a trap to either admit that there was no resurrection, like they believed. They wanted to show that their belief was right. Or they were trying to find him in some inconsistency, some way that they could cross Jesus to sort of show that he, he doesn't know everything. In fact, there may even be a scenario that he would have no clue the answer to, and they think it's this. And so they, they asked Jesus, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Deuteronomy 25. Now there were seven brothers with us. And the first married and died having no children and left his wife to his brother. And also the second and the third down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. So the woman has been married to seven brothers. And so they ask him, so in the resurrection, whose wife will, of the seven will she be? Because they were all married to her. Verse 29. Jesus said, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. And then verse 30. Jesus notes, For in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. In heaven. What Jesus has just said about marriage, what Paul understands Jesus to have said about marriage, is though it is glorious, it is not ultimate. Only that which lasts forever is ultimate by definition. And there's one thing that's going to last forever, and that's the relationship between Christ and his church, that glorious relationship. Marriage doesn't last forever, which means that for none of us, married or single, should marriage be treated or viewed as though it is ultimate. Ephesians 5 reminds us of this, of this mystery. He's been talking about husbands and wife, and he says, of this mystery, I'm referring to the relationship between Christ and the church. So Ephesians 5 then reminds us that every earthly marriage is but a foretaste. Every earthly marriage is but a shadow. Every earthly marriage is but a pointer to the thing that is ultimate, to the thing that does last, Christ and his church. That's the real marriage that our hearts were made for. I love how John Piper speaks to this. 
He says, the best human pleasures that we know in this world are wonderfully suited for life under the sun. But think about the age to come. In the age to come, there will be no sun. S-U-N. Because the city to come has no need for the sun to shine. Because it radiates with the glory of God as its light. And so why then does marriage end? Why is marriage not ultimate? Well, in the same way that the sun is going to end. In the same way that physical bodies are going to end. Our physical bodies are but a foretaste, a pointer of the perfected resurrection bodies. The sun that radiates and gives light to everything is but a foretaste, a pointer to the glory of God that will radiate and give light to everything. So too marriage is this foretaste, a pointer, not to this earthly relationship between two humans, but between this ultimate relationship between Christ and his bride. And so that means that marriage in this age, at its best, offers some of life's most intense pleasures and sweetest intimacies. And if you've ever tasted of these or you've ever dreamed of tasting of these, then maybe you can feel the astonishing force of this promise that marriage is going to be no more. And the reason marriage is going to be no more in glory is because marriage is too weak to carry God's best eternal pleasures. I mean, just let your soul feast on that. If you so long for marriage and you think what marriage would give me would so bring me pleasure, there is an eternal weight of pleasure that nothing in this earth is going to compare. And if you're thinking, I am married and I cannot, I can't fathom Marriage is good. I cannot fathom in eternity not being married. That's because you are far, far, uh, you're, you're thinking far inferior to those eternal pleasures that can't be contained in an earthly human relationship. The more that you feel like you would miss, then the more you should rejoice because it will be replaced. Paul can commend singleness because Paul knows that the meaning of marriage is and has always been about something that's true for marrieds and just as true for singles. And so if marriage isn't ultimate, are you living as though it is? Has it become an idol that you're bowing to day in and day out? Either because you have it and you're wrongly prioritizing it or, you're want, or you want it and you're wrongly prioritizing it. Some of us have made an idol of marriage concerning the goodness of marriage. If you're not married this morning, don't confuse your identity with your calling and somehow think you are incomplete because you have the gift and are in a season of singleness. If it's good news that marriage will expire, then it's also good news that your singleness will expire. 
giving way to the same glorious reality. And so Paul is able to say, I desire all to be single. Right? This is the same guy in Philippians chapter 3 who said, all things that I count as gain, that I have counted as gain, those are loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul's able to say this because he knows that the shadow of every earthly marriage doesn't last forever because, praise be to God, it gives way to the heavenly substance. Point number two. Singleness is commended because like marriage, singleness is a gift. Singleness is commended because like marriage, singleness is a gift. We see this in the second half of verse 7. Paul writes, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that manner. And so the latter part of this verse is this concession to his desire. I wish everyone had this, but I'm not going to command everyone to have this because the same God who has given the good gift of singleness also gives the good gift of marriage. Again, I wonder, do you believe that this morning? That the same good God who gives the good gift of singleness is the same good God who gives the good gift of marriage. Notice, both of the gifts are given by God. This is where the idea of singleness as a gift comes from. Each man has his own gift. One in this manner, another in that manner. And if they come from God, then this begins to push up against our understanding and our belief about who God is. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking and he He's talking and he's saying, when you pray, what good father, when you ask for one thing, gives you something that would harm you. No good father would do that. And then he gets to verse 11 and he says, so in the same way, he only gives good gifts. And then we see James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift that is above comes from him. And so when we begin to understand this singleness, just like marriage, they're both gifts, then we can't say, based on the character of God, that my gift isn't good, or he's not good in giving me this gift. No, Psalm 84, verse 11, speaks to that. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is where Psalm 84, verse 11, wants to get up into your personal space this morning. Do we believe that the character and the actions that flow from the character of this good God that he does not withhold anything good from his people. Do we believe that? Tim Keller puts it this way, everything is necessary that God sends our way. 
Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Psalm 84, verse 11, he withholds no good thing. So then everything is necessary that he gives us. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Again, a a quote from Spurgeon that I go back to often. If any other condition had been better for you than the one in which you are in, divine love would have put you there. One more time, let it hit and let it sit. If any other condition had been better for you than the one in which you were in, divine love would have put you there. You are placed by God in the most suitable circumstances. And if you could choose your lot, you would soon cry, Lord, choose my heritage for me. For by my ways, I am pierced through with many sorrows. And so Spurgeon says, then be content with the things that you have, since the Lord has ordered all things for your good. Take up your own daily cross. It is the burden best suited for your shoulder and will prove most effective to make you perfect in every good work and word for the glory of God. Busy self and proud impatience must be put down. It is not for us to choose, but for the Lord of love to give. Just preparing this week, standing up, knowing I'm preaching this from a different position of having received a different gift than my single brothers and sisters this morning. And my heart just like heavy. Heavy. Because I long for this church to believe these truths. That we would trust fully that God does not withhold any good thing to those who walk uprightly. And that has nothing to do with your performance this week. Just to be clear, it has everything to do with your trust and your repentance. Everything to do where your faith resides. There's a lot of debate surrounding what is the gift of singleness, but if we stick close to Scripture, we can clear up a lot of confusion. And so according to the Bible, the gift of singleness is an external circumstance, not an internal disposition. The word gift is mentioned once in verse 7, and it's in reference to the state of being single or to the state of being married. That is not an inward disposition. That is an external circumstance. And so as Paul talks about the gift, what he's laboring for is not, hey, get your heart in the right place in order to receive this gift. He's saying, no, you either have the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness. And how you know which gift you have is the season of life you're currently in. If you're married, that's your gift. If you're single, that's your gift. And so when Paul speaks of singleness as a gift, he's not speaking of this supernatural ability to find contentment in your singleness. No, 
married people are to find contentment in their marriage. That's not unique to singleness. He's speaking of the state of being single. And as long as you're single, that's the gift that you have. Just as marriage will be God's gift to you if you ever receive it. And so we should, we should receive that calling about these two stations as gifts from God. They are gifts of God's grace to us. And so if you've struggled by thinking, I just don't have the superpower that he apparently only gives the few. No, this is a God-given gift that he gives to all. And I think it's helpful also to dispel some of the lies. Some of the lies to think that there are things that are available in one gift, but that are not available in the other. And let me be clear, there's one, there's one difference. And that's expression of sexuality. That's sexual intimacy. Outside of that, the relationships, think about intimacy, think about family. Intimacy is wired to be found in marriage as well as found in singleness. And our culture has shrunk the definition of intimacy to be primarily sexual. And if we buy into that lie, then that means everyone who is single will not experience intimacy. That is not how God designed it. Intimacy is so much, it's so much more bountiful than sexuality. And for marriage, it includes sexuality. But it is not only sexuality. And because of that, we are losing intimacy's place in friendships. Friend now means someone who likes your page. Someone who's interested in knowing what you post. But Proverbs says a friend is someone who knows your soul. It's related to the Hebrew word of secrecy. They know you. They know who you are inwardly, not just externally. And Proverbs says that you can't be wise in this world without friends. You need friendship for marriage, but you do not need marriage for friendship. Marriage, marriages will die because of lack of friendships. And I love what John, John 15, Jesus calls his disciples his friends. And after calling them his friends, he then says, and because of that, I'm going to let you know what the Father has let me know. I'm going to let you in on things. Friendship is intimacy. It's being deeply known and deeply loved at the same time. Friendship is meant to be one of the primary categories that we experience intimacy. Marriage requires and demands exclusivity, but friendships... They don't require and demand exclusivity. And so while there may be a depth of intimacy apart from sexual relations with one person that singles don't experience, singles have the capacity for a breadth of relational intimacy that those with the gift of marriage don't have. And so to think, well, if I'm single, then I have to forfeit intimacy. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That is not how God designed it. 
but even family. Some believe that singleness means that they'll have no family, but the gospel blows this notion to pieces. The, the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, he walks away sad because he's unwilling to sell his possessions and to follow Jesus. And Peter decides that maybe this moment is a good time for me to let Jesus know that I've left everything. Like maybe this is the moment that I can just remind Jesus that, hey, the rich young ruler, you didn't get to pick him on your team, but you got me. And so Peter speaks up, he makes a statement. He says, this is what I've done. And Jesus' response is interesting, verse 29. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is always honest about what it costs to follow him. And he seems to show that the most costly thing that we will leave is familial. It's relational. That when we follow Christ and we belong to the family of God, the, the gospel really is thicker than blood. And it doesn't mean that it does away with our, our birth and, and, and earthly relationships. But those will give way to the thing that will last, the relationship between the people of God and their Savior. And while mercifully, this isn't true for most of us that we have had to lose our families. And I love what Jesus says in verse 30. He doesn't say, hey, listen, if you follow me and you lose all of this, just wait till heaven because it's going to be worth it then. No, Jesus says, I will reward those. They will receive, those who have lost, they will receive in this present age. They will receive much. Jesus says it's worth it even in this life that you'll never give up more than what you receive. Never. And this isn't prosperity gospel. I'm going to put a five in the plate and see if I get a hundred when I get home. No, this is if you lose for my sake, I will give you family. You will not be alone. And remember, Paul is writing this because time is... the brevity of life and the passing of this world, those things are con converging. They're, it's closing in. In light of this, Christians are to strive towards that which is eternal, their devotion to Christ. And while all Christians are called to this kind of devotion, it's the calling of singleness that puts on display the eternal nature of this devotion. Like singleness more than marriage demonstrates that in the present, the future reality of the church's union with Christ, that that devotion, that in the age to come, the hope of those who will be united with Christ is the hope of single Christians now. That, that we're not scrambling to find marriages on earth because there's coming a day where we will be given in marriage to the ultimate bridegroom. And so singleness glorifies God by communicating the message that love and devotion to Christ is first and foremost. 
it says to a watching world, God is enough. God is sufficient. God is worth all of the pain of following him. That's the high calling of singleness. And that's the message that it communicates, not about the single person, but about God himself. I, I wonder if we've lost the notion that singleness says more about God than it does about the single. Do we believe that? And while most people will marry, we should not assume that everyone should marry. And so church, let's be careful for what we imply in conversations to single brothers and sisters. Praise God for a desire to help one who desires to be married find that relationship. But Lord, help us. If our main interactions with singles is constant questions about why they're not yet married, that doesn't showcase that we believe singleness is a gift. And so let's reclaim the beauty of singleness as it's taught in the scriptures. That just like marriage, it is a gift that has been given by God for the good of all. Brings us to our last point. Singleness is commanded because it has advantages. Singleness is commanded because it has advantages. We find this in verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them, it is good for them if they remain even as I. So Paul continues to focus here on those who are single, but not just those who have never been married. He makes mentions of widows, those who had been married but aren't married now. We likewise would include those who have been divorced, those who have experienced it but aren't that now. And so again, I just want to remind you, if you find yourself this morning, whether it's a widow, divorced, single all through life, your circumstance of singleness does not define you. Your union with Christ is what defines you. And Paul later gets into the advantage of singleness. If you look down 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 28 through 35, we just encourage you this afternoon, take time, begin to just unpack and read through the advantages. Verse 29, the time has been shortened. 31, the world is passing away. 32, I want you to be free from concern. The one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. His interests are divided. Paul's trying to warn of the troubles of being married. He's not down on marriage. He's just realistic. And part of being married is having certain troubles and responsibilities that those with the gift of singleness don't have. Those with the gift of singleness won't have to walk through the pain and the heartache and the grief of losing children, of having a spouse abandon you, of divorce, of children walking away from the Lord. You see, we can so often compare 
the downs of singleness with the ups of marriage. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 7 says, no, 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 no. Let's also compare the ups of singleness with the downs of marriage. And so it's not one that makes most anniversary cards. But it would be biblical to write, honey, let's have worldly troubles together. And so when one person goes from single to married or goes from married to single, it's not that they're going from no problems to challenges now in singleness. It's not that they're going from no problems to challenges now in marriage. No, there's challenges in both. And Paul shows us what singleness frees us up for. It spares us from things. It frees us up from things. Paul's writing so that we would be free from anxieties. Marriage has a way of taking our eyes off of God's glory. And Paul says that shouldn't be, but singleness affords freedom from those potential burdens. So this isn't license for married people to not be as serious about God's glory and single people to be really serious about it. No, Paul's saying that undistracted, undivided devotion, it begins to get divided when you begin to take on others in your family. And so married friends, your responsibilities are not license for disobedience. And your responsibilities to honor God is not license for you to say, uh, the singles in my church can step up to the plate and they can do it. No, that is not what God has designed. It's part of your calling to balance your responsibilities in marriage and family with your privileges and responsibilities of honoring God. And married friends, the church can oftentimes place unhelpful expectations on singles. And so let's learn to love our single brothers and sisters well. Let's esteem singles as complete in Christ, not lacking because God has given them a different gift. And so consider the reality that the gospel is thicker than blood. And then begin to practically think, I wonder what my single brothers and sisters are doing this holiday season. Ah, I've had the opportunity to go home and have conversations with those that I live with. I wonder what my single brothers and sisters who, who perhaps don't have that. And so it causes us as a church to lean in and to consider well what it looks like to come alongside regular rhythms of our life opening up our dining room tables, seeking to cultivate appropriate intimacy in meaningful family relationships. And to my single brothers and sisters, singleness isn't a concern-free kind of life. But Paul's comparison stands that when you put the divided interest between a single and a married, singles have less to be concerned about and much more freedom to be occupied with the things of the Lord. And this is how singleness should be lived out. Singles are now freed up for undivided devotion to God. Being called into fewer directions affords a, a capacity and a flexibility with your schedule and with your giftings. 
And so brothers and sisters, leverage your singleness as as a means of doing spiritual good to others. Singleness is not a bad thing. 1 Corinthians 12 says, the use of any gift that you have been given is for the building up of the body. And so I wonder this morning, single brothers and sisters, is this how you view your singleness? Perhaps some aspect of your struggle with contentment in the area of singleness can be traced to your preoccupation with coming back and turning your singleness onto yourself as opposed to leveraging your singleness to doing good to others. And so can I just encourage you, focus on the advantages of singleness and entrust the disadvantages to the Lord. Your calling of singleness is not the parentheses before the good life really begins. No, the good life began when you were united to Christ. And there's no wasted season. And you say, Justin, I hear you. I, I, I understand what you're saying. That all makes sense. But truth be told, I don't want this gift. And this is where my heart has ached this week. For those of you who find yourself here saying, I don't want the gift, I just want to encourage you along three points this morning. First, I want to remind you that even though you may not want it, it is still a gift. And it's a gift that's meant to be received. And those gifts that are meant to be received we must receive. But it's not just a gift. I know that unwanted singleness is also a trial. I know it's a trial. And you respond faithfully to your trial when you endure with patience and trust in the ways of God. Linking arms with other brothers and sisters who have trials of various kinds. And yet I also know that unwanted singleness can also be a loss. If you find yourself understanding that your singleness is a more, more of a loss than anything, I would just plead with you, don't deal with the loss by ignoring it or being angered at God because of it. No, deal with your loss by lamenting it. One pastor said, occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped you would have, grieve its losses, feel its pains, and then in due time, wash your face with the promises of God, trusting him anew again and again. I mean, brothers and sisters, it's easy to look back and trace God's faithfulness. It's hard to look ahead. But because of Christ, we can say, Psalm 40, verse 11, you, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will ever preserve me. If what you need this morning is grace for unwanted singleness for two more years or for 50 more years, you'll have it because he does not withhold good for those who walk upright. And so God promises spectacular blessings to those who remain single in Christ. And he affords you with this gift an extraordinary calling for your life. 
Your singleness says more about God than it does about you. It says more about his supreme sufficiency to satisfy every need, his supreme worth to be treasured above all. If you're single, you are not falling short of God's best. You are on a path of Christ-exalted, covenant-keeping obedience that many are called to walk. And God makes a stunning promise in Isaiah chapter 56 to eunuchs, to those who choose to remain single in Christ. And the promise is that they will have blessings that are better than the blessings of marriage and children. You say, how in the world can God make that promise? That eunuchs, those who will not marry, will spend forever celibate. How in the world will they be blessed with blessings that are better than that of marriage and children? What's well, because the promises of Isaiah 56 are rooted into the work of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And particularly Isaiah 53 verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, if he does this, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. When the Messiah dies, this promised one, when he comes and he dies as an offering of guilt and he rises again to prolong his days, that act will produce many children, his offspring. And these new people, they're not formed by procreation, so we need marriage. No, they're, they're formed by the atoning death of Christ and faith in that work. And so being in an earthly marriage, though it's a sweet gift, it's not a necessary gift in order to know his blessing. Being in God's family means being eternally blessed. Relationships that are based on family are temporary. Relationships that are based on our union with Christ are eternal. You can be welcomed into his family and this family will never end. And you can, if you will turn from your sin and trust and the only hope for you to be ever restored to this God who plans to live forever with his people, your sin would keep you from that today. And so the Bible says, come to the end of yourself by trusting that the righteousness you need, Jesus lived. By trusting that the death and the wrath that you deserve, Jesus died. And by trusting that all of that was sufficient because on the third day he defeated the greatest enemy that you and I will face, death itself. If we will turn from that and place our faith and trust in him, we can know this kind of marriage, this kind of eternity, this kind of God.